Turn with me this evening to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 in your copy of God's Word. Fear not, when I put my bulletin in the hymnal just now, I made sure it's sticking out so I can find it this time. It doesn't go hiding on me like it did this morning. So Matthew chapter 23, and I'll begin reading at verse 13, and I will read until verse 28. So Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 13, let's hear God's word. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Verse 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Amen. We'll end our reading there, and let's pray for God's help. Lord, God in heaven, again, we thank you that you are the sovereign Lord. For the Spirit who is our teacher, who speaks in the Word of God. We thank you for that. Help us to hear his voice tonight. And it's the voice of the Good Shepherd, even if Jesus speaks here with, with a severity uh, that may not be as common. Lord, these are his words. We need to hear them. Help us to understand them. And help us to avoid any uh, instance of this in our own lives. That we might be like the Master, our our teacher in heaven. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, we began to look at this chapter last time we were together on the Lord's Day evening. It's been a few weeks since I was with you on 
that occasion, we've had other uh, activities, and then we were gone, obviously, one Sunday. So just a real quick reintroduction to Matthew 23. We've been tracking in these latter uh, chapters of Matthew this growing opposition between Jesus and the religious leaders. He has particularly pressed them on how they're living out their identity or their vocation as the people of God is the fruit they're bearing, the fruit that God is actually looking for. And they have increasingly challenged Jesus's authority. Who are you to say these things and to do these various actions? And in chapters 21 and 22, it was quite an intense back and forth buildup until finally the, we had Jesus's response spilling over into this whole chapter of Matthew 23. It was a lot of short back and forth in the previous chapters, but now Jesus has a rather extended speech. And as we'll see, even though the, the scene will change when we get to chapters 24 and 25, it's once again a long speech on Jesus that is on a very similar topic. So Jesus here takes aim at the scribes and the Pharisees, those leaders of religious life in Israel, and those whom he holds accountable for Israel losing its way spiritually. Here he issues his verdict on them. And what so much of his words focus on is this accusation of their hypocrisy. Maybe you even noticed it when we read the passage tonight, a reoccurrence several times of the word hypocrites. And when we think of the word hypocrite, we think of a person who says one thing but does something else, perhaps even the opposite of what they say. And for some readers of the Bible, that has made them wonder, why does Jesus accuse the Pharisees of this when there's not many other sources that take that approach? So, for example, the Pharisees have quite a popular appeal, we know, from other Jewish literature. Josephus says that they're actually, uh, you know, very sincere people who follow their own traditions meticulously. Why would Josephus say that? And why would they gain such a following if they are actually quite insincere? And it's led students of the New Testament to go looking closer at this word hypocrite in order to understand exactly what Jesus is getting at. And when we look at the way Matthew uses the word, we can actually get a slightly different angle on it. Rather than defining hypocrite as someone who says one thing and does the opposite, it's viewed more in Matthew's gospel now as not so much conscious insincerity, but a distorted perspective. A perspective on what it means to do the will of God where these folks think they're doing the will of God, but they are actually missing the main point. They are doing certain things, but they are not the things that get at the heart of what it means to be a servant of God or to keep His commands. And let me give you a few examples from Matthew's Gospel that I, help, I think helps bear this out, support this understanding of hypocrisy. In Matthew 6, 2, Jesus says in a very similar context, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Notice there, it's not so much that they're maybe promising to give, but they never actually do it. 
No, they're giving, but they're announcing their giving. Thus, their giving in many ways is for their own benefit rather than the benefit of others. Later in the next chapter, in Matthew 7, 5, Jesus says, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There's that situation of confrontation and correction where the person is not aware of their own errors going into the situation. Matthew 15, Jesus says, You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And again, very similar context to what we're looking at tonight. Remember, Matthew 15 is where he says, look, through your tradition, you nullify the commandments of God. You say you ought to honor your father and mother, but if you were to give this material gift to the temple instead of to taking care of your parents, you would be satisfied with that. It's not so much that they say one thing and that they do another, it's that what they think is important doesn't line up with what God's word says is important. And we'll especially see that tonight. Here in Matthew 23, for example, towards the end of our reading, the, the meticulous tithe that ignores justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It looks good on the outside, but the inward qualities are lacking. So one commentator writes, the focus is not so much on a conscious attempt to deceive as on a false perspective or sense of values which prevents the hypocrites from seeing things as God sees them. They are not so much deceivers as disastrously self-deceived. I think that view on it works a little better when we look at Matthew 23 as a whole. You may wonder, okay, but what about verse 3? Jesus says, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. That sounds more down the alley of the traditional understanding of hypocrite. Here's how I think we can understand his words in light of all that follows and that of all that has been said. They preach the kingdom of God. Jesus says, do not do what they do, for they don't practice what they preach. Well, what do they preach? They preach God's kingdom. They preach, follow God in order to have his blessing on our nation. They say, follow us and God will bless, but their actions don't produce that. Their actions lead away from that. I think that's what Jesus is getting at there when he attacks their inconsistency. What they offer is not what they can actually deliver. And so the attitude attacked in this chapter, again, as one commentator writes, is a religion of externals, a matter of ever more detailed attention to rules and regulations while failing to discern God's priorities. Many, perhaps most, of these religious leaders did indeed fulfill their duties, but Jesus' charge is that their fulfillment is fundamentally flawed, and the resulting zeal could do more harm than good. And as we saw in our first lesson, Matthew isn't just taking pot shots across the way at, at people he doesn't like. He applies this to his own congregation and his own audience. So let's look tonight then at more of Jesus' verdict here on Israel's religious leaders. The first time we entered this chapter, we did verses 1 through 12, which is his warning. 
He warns them, hey, beware of the way they approach religion, so to speak. Beware of the way they approach God's law. It's done for people to see. It's a cumbersome burden. They impose regulations, but they don't lift a finger to help you. They put distance between you and them with their titles, whereas there is an equality to the body that worships the one father, the teacher, the instructor, the master in heaven. So Jesus warns them against the scribes and the Pharisees. You'll know them by their fruits, basically. What kind of fruit does their teaching produce in your life, and Jesus warns it's not good fruit. Well, we come tonight then to the beginning of the woes, and that concerns the rest of the chapter, verses 13 through 39. Having warned the people, Jesus now turns and directly addresses the religious leaders. And as you notice from our reading, his tone here is much sharper, maybe even a lot sharper than other places in the Gospels where we read his words. Now, there are seven woes in the rest of the chapter. The first six are in three pairs. In other words, the first two seem to have a matching theme, the next two a similar theme, and same for the final two. Then, woe number seven really brings the whole thing to a culmination. So what we'll do tonight is look at the first six woes, the three pairs. Because the seventh woe provides a very natural transition into the next chapter. So next Sunday night, when we look at the seventh woe, that we'll actually be able to use that as a springboard and already begin to look at Matthew 24. So let's look at these six woes, these three pairs of woes in the verses that we have read. The first pair is here in verses 13 through 15. And it mainly speaks of keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Alright, so here you've got these folks who they themselves don't enter God's kingdom. Now we could pick that up from the Gospels. Jesus has come to say, this is what it means to people of God. You, you, you need to repent and, and follow you know, the reforms that John the Baptist introduced. Get rid of the tradition and, and follow me as I'm teaching. But even taking it up then another level, recognizing in me, God's kingdom is coming. I'm the new Moses, so you need to follow me. Well, well Jesus or the, the religious leaders for the most part wouldn't do that. Some did. Nicodemus. Other scribes come and Jesus says you're not far from the kingdom of God. But for the most part, the religious leaders would not follow him. Later in the book of Acts, we read about many priests becoming obedient to the faith. So a lot of hope, a lot of grace. But, but as Jesus targets them, they are not, for the most part, following him. But not only that... They will not allow others to enter the kingdom of God as well. Now, Jesus doesn't say exactly how it is that happens. Like, how are they preventing other people from entering the kingdom of God? We could deduce from this chapter that it is by means of their teaching. So they miss the point of the law. They're not getting to the heart of what God commands. And so they're not entering the kingdom. But then the way they teach the law and the traditions to others, if others were to follow that, it would keep them 
from entering the kingdom of heaven. So they burden people with these traditions and that burden takes them down the wrong path and they continue to go that way. Again, one commentator writes, as the official guardians of God's will revealed in the law, the scribes and Pharisees had the responsibility for helping others to live by the will of God. But instead, their teaching and example has kept people out. And they themselves have failed to find the right way in. I almost wonder, too, if, if maybe Jesus is hinting back, referring back to what he said in Matthew 7. The, the passage there on the beam in the eye and the, and the splinter in the other eye, which, which flows right into the instructions, judge not. How, how do all those work together? And when, when I preached through those, I said there's a sense here in which you've got these different groups in, in Israel saying, hey, you're the problem. You're the reason God isn't blessing us. You're the compromisers. You're the one that's keeping us from God's blessing. And Jesus is saying, hey, don't condemn one another. Just worry about your own soul. What, what log is in your own eye? How can you follow God's kingdom and God's will? And maybe that's being tied in here. You know, these Pharisees are looking at Jesus and saying, he's dangerous. He's, he's taking you away from Moses. And, and God is going to punish us or fail to bless us if we tolerate this false teaching. Jesus says, you're saying I'm the enemy, and that is actually keeping you on the wrong path and keeping others on the wrong path as well. So they won't enter, and they keep others from entering as well. Interestingly, then, the second woe that goes along with that actually deals with missionary zeal. Verse 15, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, sometimes we think of lacking missionary zeal as a spiritual problem. In this context, it's the opposite. These folks don't have a problem with lacking missionary zeal. Unfortunately, their zeal is for the wrong things. So religious leaders would often work hard uh, to convince a Gentile who showed interest in their religion to become a full-fledged convert. We read in the book of Acts and other literature about God-fearers. That's a particular title. Gentiles who became interested in Israel's God, interested in the law of God, and, and they would have per, perhaps a halfway, I don't know the exact right word, but, but some kind of connection to the synagogue though they had not yet become full converts to Judaism. They hadn't undergone circumcision, for example, and committed to keep the entire law of God. Well, when those folks showed interest, there was great zeal. Hey, let's get them across the threshold. Let's get them to make this full commitment. But Jesus warns, if they adopt the form of religion that you are teaching, if they adopt a form of religion that can't save them, then that convert is still lost. Or as Jesus says here, they are still a child of hell. Now when Jesus talks like this, I think it's good to, to say this you know, towards the front of the passage. He, he is dealing with Pharisees. And he is dealing with a particular group of Jews at a particular point in time. I think it's easy sometimes to read these and think perhaps of Jewish people as a whole in this kind of lens. I think that would be inaccurate. Jesus is dealing with a particular group of people who have made particular decisions at a particular time that have led them down a bad path. But the decisions they are made are decisions that can tempt any of us. 
So these particular Pharisees, what were they trying to do? They were trying to save their country. They were trying to keep off foreign oppression. They were trying to return to the ways of God. They were trying to take the commands for holiness in the Bible and say, hey, how can all of God's people keep these so that we might once again prosper and that God might visit us and save us as he's promised to do in his word? And the problem is the answers they were giving to those questions were formed from zeal and tradition not lined up with what God's word teaches. It had a form of covenant renewal that was just out of step with the covenant itself. And when we paint it that way, I think we're a little more sympathetic. We can all relate to those concerns and, and maybe be aware of the dangers of that could come. So Jesus is giving these verdicts on those who've gotten down that kind of path, a path that we could all stumble down if we're not careful. And his focus here then is on this zeal to get people to adopt their form of religion. It's not a condemnation of missionary zeal. It's not a condemnation of trying to get others to embrace a way of following God that is for their spiritual good. But if we are calling them to something that is just a burdensome weight, extra biblical tradition, then that is not good. And that will never help them in the long run. There was a zeal to convert, but there wasn't a zeal to help them bear burdens. And so they remain a child of hell, as Jesus says. And this is the word translated hell, Gehenna, this, this valley that is south of Jerusalem where refuse was burned over time, became a picture of eternal punishment, a picture that would be appealed to as a kind of judgment that would come upon those who don't know God. So that's the first pair. It deals mainly with not knowing God. The second pair, in verses 16 through 24, these focus on the distorted perspective. An approach to religion that puts details before the basic principles, or maybe we should say the big ideas of religion in the proper sense of the word, knowing and worshiping God and ethics. So in the third woe, I won't reread the, re -read the details here, but you notice in verses 16 through uh, 22, this focus on swearing oaths and the basis of your oath. Just one example. If anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. What kind of oath is actually binding? And it's not immediately clear to us from Jesus' words maybe where these traditions came for, how these details might have developed. But the big idea is pretty clear. It's just this elaborate hierarchy of oaths, this elaborate hierarchy of, of holy items where if you swear by this one, well, well then there's a loophole. You might not have to keep your vow. If you swear by this one, okay, yeah, then you better do it. And you get the impression of the attempt to find loopholes and not keep one's commitments. So there's a failure to focus on the big idea. There's a failure to focus on honoring God and loving others and doing good for others. Again, it really reminds me of what we read in Matthew 15, you know, if you say, well, this money I have, well, that's for the temple, you don't have to take care of your aging parents. Just seems like this way of getting out of doing these things that are so fundamental to loving God, 
in a system that can appear and even feel very religious. And again, you know, we might read this and say, this just looks so silly. Like, why were these Jews so silly? It's easy to scoff at it because it looks silly to us. Maybe think of some of the debates that we go through in our times. Because there's always something where we try to have this elaborate way of approaching God uh, that doesn't, in the end, get to the heart of the matter. You know, one of the ones that might come to mind, one of the ones I, I feel when I hear these go on, is maybe debates about Sabbath observance. You know, is it good to honor the Lord's Day? Is it a command? Absolutely. Is it a gift that God gave you for your good? Yes. But in some of the debates, okay, well then what can we do and what can't we do? You know, it sometimes looks like it's straying into this territory. You've got this big idea, God gave you this day for your good. And on a day on which you can worship him and glorify him. And we just get so focused on the minutia. I only bring up that example to say, let's not scoff at the people in Matthew 23. It's a path we could end up down if we stop focusing on the big ideas, honoring God, worshiping Him, loving Him. And Jesus says, quite frankly, you know, you people who, who go down these debates, He goes, you're blind fools. Now, by the way, why is Jesus calling them fools when back in Matthew 5, He told us, don't call people a fool, that might put you on the path to hell. Perhaps the distinction is, you know, in Matthew 5, you've got this thoughtless use of the term, just a disregard for people. Whereas here, Jesus is saying, look, I'm thinking in terms of Proverbs. You know, your decisions reflect a real lack of understanding. And so then we come into the fourth woe, where just once again, you have this meticulous concern for detail, which leaves the essentials... Untouched. Verse 23, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now again, is tithing good? Yes. Tithing was commanded under the old covenant law. You had to give in order to maintain the priesthood. They lived off those tithes. And God's commands about tithing included produce. So an application to herbs isn't much of a stretch. I think we read this and we're tempted to say, oh, that's so silly, God doesn't want you to tithe your herbs. Well, he said give your produce, so is it that much of a stretch? Not so much. But the problem is, you, you give so much weight to these rules, or what might even in this instance just be an application of the rule, and you're ignoring the fundamental commands, the big purposes of God's law. It makes me think of Paul's words in Galatians 5.14. The whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I fully believe that Paul wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But even when I read that verse, I'm like... Paul, like how? Like you can read the whole Old Testament law and say, hey, God was really just aiming at one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. But Paul is not only inspired, he's reading the Old Testament with the right lenses on. He's got his Jesus glasses on and he's reading these laws and he's saying, guys, this is what God really wants. So don't get so bogged down in these commands and these applications of commands. Fix your eye on the big picture and you can't go wrong. 
Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And by the way, there's no suggestion in Jesus' words here that the scribes and the Pharisees had a problem with justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus isn't saying they're antagonistic to it. He's just saying you don't devote the same care to that and working out the practical implications of that as you do to the minutiae of tithing herbs. And I think Jesus is saying that because, listen, when you focus so much energy on the minor ideas, you really just don't have any energy left for the other ideas, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But friends, that gets to the heart of what God desires from his people. And so verse 24 just gives uh, the same idea in a rather humorous and even somewhat exaggerated imagery where you would strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Gnats run clean, so you strain it out of the drain. Make sure you didn't swallow one accidentally. Well, he goes, you'll, you'll give attention to that and swallow a camel. Obviously, an absurd, ludicrous idea, but he's trying to get us to realize just how silly it is. All right, last uh, two woes here, the third pair. In verses 25 to 28, here the focus is on a contrast between outward and inward purity. So a focus on not entering the kingdom and, and preventing others from doing it and why that might be. And then a contrast of principles, the, the minor details and applications versus the big ideas. And now lastly, outward and inward purity. The fifth woe here in verse 25, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrite. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So uh, you got a metaphor here. You've got the inside of the cup, the outside of a cup. That is a picture of the inside of a person and the outside of a person. The law of God has a lot to say about ritual purity. You weren't allowed to just ignore it. It's God's law. But what Jesus is getting at here is if you have ritual purity without moral Cleanness, well, that's a sham. And I think the whole point of the purity laws was to be the object lesson. Hey, you need God to make you pure. So you can be ritually clean, but if inside there's greed, if there's self-indulgence, then the, outs the outside, the external stuff, it counts for nothing. And maybe Jesus is even saying, you know, greed and self-indulgence, that's what we're capable of. When we don't pursue justice and mercy and faithfulness. Think of Jesus' words uh, earlier in the gospel. You know, you devour widows' houses. And then the sixth woe then is on uh, the same idea. Verse 27. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. Which look beautiful on the outside. But inside are full of the bones of the dead. And everything clean. Touching a corpse. Or touching a bone. That's... One of the most serious forms of uncleanness in the law. And so these tombs would be whitewashed to prevent people from touching them. I mean, it's, it's a helpful surface if you don't want to be ritually unclean. But Jesus is saying you can't think that's the whole idea. You've got to understand the purpose and get at that big idea. You can't just give this impression of righteousness and lack the fruit. That is pleasing to God. 
And so now you can see, by the way, how the word hypocrite could describe that. The same word can, can really get at both realities. One, conscious insincerity, or in the other, the appearance doesn't match the reality. Jesus warns us against a form of religion that would give appearance, but not have the reality of what God really cares about in his word. Because he says at the end of the day, whether Old Testament or New, that is what will mark my people. So I would just give you that encouragement this week, brothers and sisters, when you sit down and read your Bible or listen to good preaching or other studies, hear what is the big idea of God's word. What, what, what are those overarching, controlling ethics that God wants me to follow? Because i got good news, friend. They're not hard to find. God publishes them again and again. Because he doesn't want us to miss them. They can get buried beneath traditions of people and religious details. But, but Jesus says, when you seek, you'll find. What I want my people to do, it's right there in front of them. So look for that. Seek that out. Have a zeal for that. And then second, just judge teaching by its fruit. You know, what kind of a person do you become under certain kinds of teaching? And does that match what Jesus approves here? Or does it match what he condemns? You want it to match what Jesus approves here. And that will be the good way that God wants us to walk. Let's pray for his help to do that. Father in heaven, again we thank you for your word. Oh, how we love your law. It is our delight day and night. Father, these, these words are... A challenge, but their life. They're just the kind of challenge we want to hear. Like a coach that might challenge a player to, to play a certain way because that then will maximize his potential and actually find enjoyment, Lord. We, we hear your voice here and we want to follow the good path because we love you and we want to know you and commune with you and, and, and love and serve others in this way. So, Lord, we would pray forgive us of our sins, forgive us of our blind spots, and open our eyes. And Lord, you be our teacher, you be our God, and you reform our life and our worship and our church by means of these principles. And thank you for your promise by your spirit to do these things for us. We commit it to you. We ask for your help and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.